Hello and welcome to the Science and Belief in Society podcast, brought to you by the International Research Network for the Study of Science and Belief in Society. I'm Dr. Will Mason-Wilkes, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. James Riley. How are you today, James? Very good, very good. Getting my head back in the podcast game after our Indeed. brief hiatus. Indeed. Uh, not brief enough or all too brief or somewhere in between, but I'm glad to be back as well. And it's a very special day. I'm recording a podcast on my birthday, so I'm I'm very happy to be here. And I'm also very happy to be welcome, welcoming our guest, Dr. Neil Stevens, who is a, an Associate Professor in Technology and Society at the University of Birmingham. So a colleague here with us. So welcome, Neil. How are you today? I'm very well, very glad to be here. Brilliant. Thanks. Thanks so much for coming on. So, yeah, so uh, you've got a, a really wide range of um, research interests, Yes, uh, you know, from 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 the development of, of surgical robots uh, all the way through to the, the culture of the Brazilian dance, fi- uh, dance fighting martial art capoeira. Uh, so, you know, yep. a really diverse research portfolio. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. Um, but alongside these these kind of diverse interests, uh, kind of another major theme of your research today uh, has been the kind of ongoing development of of cultured meat. So could you tell us what is cultured meat, um, sort of how you became interested in it, and then particularly sort of what elements of the field or the technology and its development raise questions that might be of interest to, to scholars interested in science and belief in society? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, that you've just asked me to detail over a decade of my work. So that's, <laughs> we're in for a long podcast, people. <laughs> uh, so cultured meat, what is it? Cultured meat um, is a technology that seeks to produce meat products, essentially, as we know them. But instead of doing it by killing animals, the idea is that you take a cell or some cells from probably living animals, maybe recently deceased animals, and in what gets termed laboratory conditions, although the people in the community really hate the laboratory word, uh, you know, in, in, in control conditions, you make those cells divide, you proliferate them, you differentiate them, you grow them into muscle tissue, maybe some fat tissue, maybe other types of connective tissue. Maybe you mix it with some other materials like a kind of a a plant-based meat alternative and you add all of this together to make something that looks currently like a a sausage, like a burger, Um, maybe in the future. And some people are working on this now. You'll make something that's more convincing as a steak or a more complex type of meat. Um, So, yeah, and this is a technology that I first heard about in 2008 so quite some time ago, when there wasn't much, uh, there weren't many people in the world doing it. I mean, there were about 20 people in the world doing it. Um, and in terms of how I got interested, at the time I was doing, so I'm a sociologist, I'm a science and technology studies person, and I was doing work looking at uh, the, the cultural and political issues around human embryonic stem cell science. Obviously, a big issue at the time, destroying human embryos to take cells to use either to develop tissue to put in people or for using in toxicology and testing and research and things like this. Um, 
And it was at this point that I first heard of this idea of what at the time everyone called in vitro meat. Um, and I just thought, this is fascinating. This is really interesting because what you have here is that actually in terms of the lab, it's very similar to what I'm looking at in terms of human embryonic stem cell science. I mean, the leading groups at the time uh, were based in the Netherlands and they were using embryonic cells from cows and pigs uh, to try to grow meat. And, and this controlling of the cells uh, was very similar between the two fields, human embryonic stem cell science, cultured meat. But because they're making food, because they're going to make something that you put into your body through your mouth as opposed to through a surgical intervention, all of the cultural and political aspects were completely different. The economics were completely different. And I thought, goodness me, there needs to be some sociology done here. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, I'm not the only person who's been doing this, but that's that's when I got into it. And so by 2010, I was out there um, interviewing people first in Europe and then internationally, who are trying to grow cultured meat, who pay other people to grow cultured meat, who support it from the third sector. Um, uh, yeah, and I've been I've been doing that ever since. So many questions. So, <laughs> so many questions. Yeah. <laughs> I... Uh... Uh, currently, I, I I assumed it's kind of quite an expensive thing to produce in my yes. head. So, uh, have you tried any, or is it too expensive too? Or yeah, yeah absolutely. I've seen some. So, yeah. uh, so the first time that it was sort of publicly unveiled and properly uh, tested and tasted was in 2013. Um, a group from the Netherlands, led by Professor Mark Post from the University of Maastricht, held a press conference in London where they had a cultured burger um, and they cooked it and they tasted it. They had two uh, food journalists essentially taste it. And I was in the audience that day. Um, this, this, I still think is probably the most high profile moment in the history of cultured meat in terms of this was front page news on a, on a number of um number of newspapers it was on Newsnight. it was on the bbc it helped and i think this was intentional that it was in august which is obviously a relatively quiet <laughs> news moment um and you know i mean i was this was my big media day as well i was on numerous tv channels talking about it um since then uh i visited laboratories that produce it uh, so the burger you get different prices for the cost of the 2013 burger but but huge numbers huge huge mm. numbers um these days uh you know sometimes you hear people talking about 50 pounds for a, for a thing that you can try uh it's, it's legally available so the okay. technology has moved on uh, a long way since the early days but it's only legal, legally available in one country that country is singapore um mm. and a company called uh, eat just uh, who are actually based in San Francisco, but they got through the regulatory procedure in Singapore, sell chicken nuggets and a couple of other chicken products. Um, I think they're about, uh, it varies. They they sell them in different restaurants at different times. It's around $25 a chicken nugget last time I heard, but we know uh, that they're, they're, they're essentially making a loss on it. You know, there's their own investment right. money is going into demonstrating to the world that this is something that's feasible that's viable that we should be able to make sense of that we should be understand that we should buy into and and the way to do that is to sell it um for less than it costs to make so 
you know, I've skipped ahead a whole decade there. <laughs> so much that's been going on um, in terms of the role of venture capital in framing all of this. Um, and for me, as a sociologist, as an STS person, what's always been really core to my project is trying to document how meanings are produced for this stuff. 2008 right what is this this is like out of nowhere it seems bizarre and what are the kind of the sociocultural processes and the emergence of institutions and promissory narratives that come into being that try to stabilize a way of understanding what this is mm -hmm. to try to stabilize a set of identities about who should consume it why who should produce it why who should fund it how should the government relate to it um and and that's been an ongoing process for a long time and a process I think will be ongoing for me for quite a long time to come. That's, that's such a fascinating um, project now. And so, and just really interesting to hear, you know, kind of your engagement over such a kind of, you know, extended period of time with it and kind of following this process through. I think it's, you know, really, a really like kind of, yeah, like object lesson in kind of doing this kind of work of STS. It's great. Um, but yeah, just to kind of um, uh, return to something you said near the start, and I think it ties into kind of, uh, the sort of uh, the question I kind of introduced this sort of bit of discussion with because you said that um, that initially in that kind of early early stages of the development of the technology people were referring to it as in vitro meat mm. and that suddenly that and or over time that um, has changed and the kind of nomenclature, nomenclature has changed and kind of cultured meat is now the kind of more accepted term and I was wondering does that or maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but it strikes me as possibly an issue that speaks to this question of, you know, the kinds of questions that might be of interest to scholars interested in kind of science and belief in society, because the, you know, with that, just thinking about whether that term in vitro, and then you think about kind of IVF as an issue that potentially has some, you know, um, interest for scholars, potentially interested in kind of the role of, of belief and kind of and how people interact with technology i wondering is is there any kind of links there between why uh you know the in vitro kind of got dropped did it have similar were people similarly concerned that it might spark you know um resistance or 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 is it just something completely just uh, there's a coincidence there that just happens to be <laughs> be the name has changed could you just say a little bit more about that no there's absolutely a kind of a cultural history i think to the to the naming conventions mm -hmm. and it's an ongoing debate uh there's been quite a few names in between okay um right. so uh and it's something i've written about so my kind of take is that the the first kind of name that people people within the community generally agreed upon is exactly as you said in vitro meat and this was a time when it was primarily university researchers who were trying to get grant funding from university funding re research bodies to to try and start this whole new thing so that was a language that was really uh, focused at other scientists and funders. I think audience is really important here, exactly as you were suggesting. Um, that moved in, then people started saying cultured meat. By 2013, the burger was referred to as the cultured burger. Um, and here, I think the audience has shifted um, more broadly to try to get publics engaged, but it was still a term that people felt uh, had some sort of scientific basis to it because you are culturing the cells, right? It's called cell culture. That's that's uh, that's a term that's that's regularly used in science, a bit less sort of techy than in vitro. Then by about 2015, a term came in called clean meat, nice. um, and clean meat was this term that gathered a lot of popularity for about two years, and then it just kind of went. Um, 
people stopped like stopped using it uh and the people that advocated for it said that this is a great term because on one level it provokes different types of conversations if someone says i'm making cultured meat the person will say well why is it cultured and then you have to say oh i start with cells whereas if you call it clean meat they say why is it clean and then you say well it's better for the environment and we kill less animals so they felt it directed different types of discussion and they also started doing surveys where clean meat came out as more favorable with publics now my take is that the problem was is that this was a name that was in terms of audience was anticipating the media and and consumers but actually the technology wasn't really wasn't at that point at that time and it caused a lot of trouble the one of the big examples is that the livestock industry who of course sort of inherently well not necessarily inherently but but often opposed to this technology uh, particularly in the US the United States Cattlemen's Association uh, filed a petition with the USDA to try to ban uh, the use of words like meat um, to describe this at all, uh, questioning its meatness and uh, saying you can't use words like steak or sausage and things like this. Um, and it really heightened a, a moment of sort of tension. And they really dislike the word clean meat because clean meat suggests that what they do is dirty. It was deliberately, well, let's not say deliberately, but perhaps for some it was provocative um, against the groups of people uh, that the culture meat community are in position as an oppositional team um so that kind of went and then it, people started calling it cell-based meat um and that took on for a little bit and in terms of my audience story this was generally uh really orientated towards regulators they were trying to come up with something that's kind of scientifically reasonable um but like at the same time all meat is made of cells right <laughs> so why is cell-based meat i mean so th these debates are ongoing and now um, for the last oh, 18 months or something, maybe two years, people have been using the term cultivated meat a lot more, um, which unfortunately for my, you know, my want to be a great sociologist, it sort of breaks down my logic of audiences, imagined audiences a little bit, because I, I think that cultivated meat, less so than having a new target audience, is really just kind of a, a middle ground. They're kind of fed up of arguing. So the people that have said cultured meat still say cultured meat. The people that used to say clean meat now typically say cultivated meat and they kind of sound similar they've got a lot of shared letters so people just don't want to have that argument anymore so so there we go there we go oh no it's it's it's, it's absolutely fascinating um and we can go on but I, but I, i'll hand over to james who i think has a has a, a question yeah yeah there's so much follow-up on that so i will i'll resist um <laughs> and and plow on um, so a recent paper that you had accepted at the International Research Networks uh, conference focused on the role that religious authorities have played in the cultured meat space, particularly into in relations to questions around whether cultured meat could be considered halal or kosher. Mm -hmm. um, so could you give us a sense of how these types of debates play out? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So as I think I've made quite clear, I've been studying people who make cultured meat for a long time. Um, I haven't, I'm not doing a study about religious authorities on food or anything like this. Um, but I've been really interested in, in moments in which representations of religiosity and people who represent these organisations come into the cultured meat space and how that shapes this process of meaning making, which is generally my core focus of all my project. Mm -hmm. Um, so 
in that presentation, I was thinking about the spaces where you see discussions of religiosity. And there were, there were a few. Um, one of the places where you probably saw it first, actually, was in kind of news media. So early news media, you know, going all the way back to when I first started looking at this in 2006 to quite a long time on, um, the way that cultured meat was framed was as the, the, the stories were pretty similar. There's like this, oh, here's this interesting, crazy thing that some scientists are doing, and it might be really good for the world, um, but would you eat it? That was the generic media framing. And then you started to get some other spin-off narratives. One of them that journalists would enjoy was, um, can you eat cultured meat from humans? You know, could you take your own cells or your partner's cells or something? Mm. And another one is, would it be kosher? Would it be halal? And uh, these kind of appeared and they were sort of, it was more broadly in this kind of narrative of sort of, here's a quirky question for us to enjoy this fun story about science. You know, um, these days you get the, the newspaper stories are much more about here's a company and they've released a new thing or someone from this position from this farmers group have said it's a bad thing but in the early days it was this kind of playful thing and and it, it just seemed to be part of that kind of narrative now the early days there weren't enough people really to have many conferences about cultured meat but from about 2015 onwards you started to get annual conferences and this would be another place where uh, religiosity would be discussed so I've been at a number of conferences where there would be a panel uh, basically with uh, a rabbi or someone else who's a professional representative of food accreditation bodies talking about this this technology mm. uh, there was one particular that I uh, went to called the Good Food Institute in 2018, where uh, a guy called Mohammed Chowdhury from uh, IFANCA, the Islamic Food and Nutrition Council of America, and Rabbi Gavriel Price from the Orthodox Union were were on a panel with a journalist for 30 minutes talking about what do we what do we think about this technology. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about the kind of things that people in this position say in a moment. But but uh, for me, I, I found this really interesting in the way that um, it's taken very seriously within the cultured meat community in terms of a space of, I think, demonstrating respect. I think that, uh, you know, these talks are always well attended. And while they are happening, uh, scientists globally are are showing sort of sort of deference to what's being said they're recognizing the significance of it at those moments but equally beyond that beyond those moments um i don't think it's it's core to their thinking at this stage and part of that is because of the and this is the message that you you get from the religious authorities part of that is to do with the profound uncertainty at the moment about exactly how culture meat is going to be made um, so, you know, if the question is, um, is cultured meat halal? Is it kosher? At the moment, the answer is, well, it depends. It mm. may be, it might be, but there's a whole lot of, um, there's a whole lot of questions, some of which can be articulated quite clearly about, well, you know, if, um, so in both of those instances, and overwhelmingly, uh, uh, when religiosity is, is, uh, seen in these spaces, it, it is particularly, um, uh, Islam and, and Jewish faith that's being talked about. Um, th there's generally a clear set of ideas about 
some of the questions like what was the slaughter process uh was the the the, the animal that donated the cells um killed in an appropriate way and and has the animal been killed so for example um it's entirely possible and actually for many culture meat enthusiasts this was the point to take cells from an animal without killing it you do some kind of biopsy mm -hmm. you know and people i've heard people talk about having these wonderful kind of animal sanctuaries where cows live lovely lives and they're well treated um and then you cause the minimum amount of pain um, and the religious authorities would normally say, uh, no, actually, it's likely that the animal will need to be slaughtered in order to take the cells. Um, there are other issues around um, the species that the cell is taken from. It would need to be uh, a kosher or halal species. Um, but also something that I think is really interesting and really feeds in from a different perspective with the sort of processes of thinking I've been going through is whether cultured meat can be understood as meat at all. Um, is it meat? Uh, from a from the perspective of, uh, uh, you know, religious teachings. And for me, uh, I've always had this question, like, is cultured meat? And if it is meat, why? What reconfiguration of our understandings of meat and animal kinship need to uh, occur for this to be recognized as meat as we know it today because the cultured meat community have generally overwhelmingly and consistently asserted that cultured meat is meat exactly as we know it it's exactly the same thing just made in a different way people talk about things like ice right you can make ice in a in a freezer or you can kind of hack it out of a very cold lake or something and it's exactly the same thing just made in a different way and this is the same thing with cultured meat some people will say it's exactly the same thing and I've always found that a deeply kind of politically laden assertion that is attempting to uh, implement a certain way of thinking and a certain type of um, activities that, um, that, that, you know, the food sector and, and consumers will engage in that will allow a type of social change that the cultural community wants to provoke. So to, and, and normally... I occasionally get asked to speak at culture meat conferences and I'll say this type of thing, but normally I'm the only one. So it's very interesting to see this other group of people also go up and sit on stage and say, well, we don't really know if this is meat or not uh, from a different kind of way. Um, so there was actually an announcement just within the last couple of weeks of a rabbi in Israel who's looking at the specific product of um, uh a company also in Israel called Aleph Farms, who make cultured meat. Um, uh, this is the Israeli chief rabbi, David uh, Barak Lau. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but um, and he said that their cultivated steak, he felt, would be kosher, um, assuming uh, that it's the particular processes that they make. Indeed, he also said that it could potentially uh, be path which means that um, it's potentially neither meat nor dairy, uh, which is an important category in terms of what you can eat it with, mm. uh, as I understand. It. I don't want to claim in any way to be an expert on this. This is just the, the message that I see reported in the media. Um, but that's really interesting because that's an assertion um, that cultured meat uh, is not meat in that kind of way. And there was also the uh, attached claim that for it to fit with this category, it would need to be labelled as such. So it, it, there's an interesting moment there where where uh, these uh, 
these ways of thinking of framing how specifically how cultural meat can be talked about potentially in other contexts uh, if they want to appeal to certain markets. So I, I think see. it's a really interesting sort of narrative that's unfolding um, and really interesting to see people deal with uncertainty and put the uncertainty in the public space in a way that uh, not all of the scientists always do. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I, it's it's absolutely fascinating, Neil. And there's, there's so many, I mean, just that, that point at the end there, I think just, again, reflecting on the ways in which this can help both kind of, you know, obviously traditional STS people, but also kind of people interested in science and belief and the the kind of the the role that that these different groups you know yourself as a sociologist the religious groups the scientists the kind of sort of ontological um kind of just like kind of work that's going on there to make this thing a particular thing from these in these different ways i just i mean it's incredibly incredibly interesting um but i i i wanted to pick up actually I don't, and again just another kind of potential issue or theme that, that is of relevant of relevance to, to the kind of wider networks in which i'm hopefully listening to this podcast um in terms of this this early media framing obviously this is something i'm interested in thinking about how how kind of media um you know representations kind of impact you know the public perceptions of science and technology and and belief um but it's really interesting that it seems like this is a kind of almost an, potentially another case where as this technology is merging very early on before it's really you know extant there's already a kind of temptation in some of this kind of media presentation quite early on to kind of use this sort of conflict the framing in the terms of in the, in the sense of which you know is it you know raising these questions is it something that religious people could find acceptable whether we don't we don't even know what it is yet but already the kind of the media framing is oh here's here's a scientific thing let's find out if if religious people you know if, if it fits into this religious like you know way of being is it kosher is it halal which is you know kind of recapitulating this you know the assumption there that, that, that it probably won't be right you know that there will be some kind of or potentially kind of recapitulating this you know this pretty you know standard science versus religion kind of conflict narrative that you see in lots of different things so it's interesting just as a this potentially being another um kind of version of that i don't know um what you think about that james as someone who's done a lot of work on conflict stuff but it's just a reflection there more than a question i don't know you know but that just that just jumped out at me yeah i mean i unless you had something on that Neil, Sorry, Neil, yeah, yeah. i'm gonna pull on pull on a kind of a thread that you were you were talking about there as well because i think it's really interesting um about that, you know, almost ontological construction, how it's happening in real real time, and you yourself being an actor at one of these conferences, almost embedded in the community that you're kind of studying. And I was thinking about a different area of expertise, which I imagine is also present at these conferences in terms of um, bioethicists. I imagine this is an area where bioethicists might be quite prevalent. And just because we have quite a multidisciplinary um, audience, so we're coming from different different backgrounds i wondered if you could say a little about how your approach to and your contributions in the in this field are distinct from kind of a bio how a bioethicist might go about it or if there are overlaps as well um in terms of your your contribution or your research approach as a as a sociologist of science and technology uh and yeah how that might be distinct or, or overlapping with someone who might call themselves a bioethicist yeah, absolutely. There's there's certainly a set of uh, papers written by people that would define themselves as ethicists or bioethicists. Um, some of them you see at the conferences as well. Um, I think the cultured meat reporting, sorry, not the cultured meat, the, the, the bioethics reporting on cultured meat uh, is quite interesting in that I've seen bioethicists use it as a place where they can almost sort of try to redefine how people think about bioethics in that um, 
often the sort of academic bioethical work around culture meat is quite supportive of culture meat. It says actually this is a good idea. We should support this for various reasons. Um, you know, it's, it doesn't cause much damage. Uh, it potentially could do great things. I mean, who knows? Maybe it won't work in the long run, but if it does, it's it's going to do a lot of good. Um, and I've certainly seen one bioethicist active. This is uh, a Cor van der Vela, is her name, um, from the Netherlands, uh, actively say that, you know, culture meat is a really great moment where um, bioethics can address the, its kind of reputation as being negative all the time <laughs> about everything and say, no, we shouldn't be doing this, we shouldn't be doing that. And actually saying, hey, look, this is an opportunity where, you know, and this paper's using various sort of philosophical utilitarian and other types of perspectives saying, hey, you know, this is this generally comes up pretty good and we should be advocating to support this. Um, so more broadly in my work on human embryonic stem cells, um, I've been in spaces where there are, are bioethicists quite regularly, and I know that bioethics can be quite diverse. Certainly one part of bioethics, uh, you know, is, is very much about trying to make normative statements about what we should and shouldn't follow. And, uh, I'm different to that in that that's much less my core narrative. Um, don't get me wrong, there's also, you know, empirically orientated bioethics that looks a bit closer to what I do. Um, but I see my core role as uh, really having two strands. One is sort of uh, documenting the emergence of this technology as it happens in a way that has all the kind of the STS science and technology studies awareness of how knowledge is produced and how it's culturally situated. Um, and sort of trying to tell the story, the cultural history, if you like, of culture meat as it's going along. At the other, at the other side, um, I see my role as trying to make sure that we have better public and academic debates about it. So a lot of the people that can claim to be experts in culture meat work for culture meat companies right now mm -hmm. um, and are very committed to culture meat being a success. Um, I don't have that. Uh, I see it as my role to be able to speak in an informed way about some of the more difficult elements of cultured meat. Um, I think that some of my work has tried to uh, make visible some of the uh, issues, some of the ones that are talked about more widely, some of the ones that are talked about less frequently, um, both in, I've written a number of papers that sort of, you know, a list of all the core issues that are happening in cultured meat, as well as doing things in the media and in policy settings. Um, so that second part of my of my work stream is much more about trying to impact on the world, but it's less so about making normative statements. I mean, I've, I've never really come out as pro or anti cultured meat. Um, uh, and people keep asking me, and, and it's in part because a lot of what I do is I stress the uncertainty and the amb ambiguity of it all, and and mm. and I think that's realistic and fair. And if I were to suddenly say, actually, it's going to be brilliant for these reasons, or it's going to be awful for that reasons, I would be, you know, ignoring the the well placed um, concerns that I have about about the fact that, that there's still a long way to go. So. So yeah, that that's that's sort of how I see my own role. I mean, I have to say, uh, I've also done quite a bit of work. You mentioned earlier that I'm that I speak at the conferences, right? And I think I've done a bit more than that. I organise some of the conferences. Um, I am. I I almost see this project as a 
a mini kind of experiment in in modes of STS engagement in that um, so, for example, we there's a group in the UK that I co-founded with a couple of other people called Cultivate, and we write some papers. We also essentially have an annual one-day conference in the UK for people that work in cultured meat. The companies come along, all this type of stuff. We started it in 2016. We've done it every year since. Um, you know, I've written some things that have been paid attention to in in policy circles. Um, so I, I do feel that that. I have a presence uh, within the cultured meat community that not all STSs do in in relationship to where they are. In part because I've been there for a long time, so the people that have also been there for a long time know me, and sort of balancing balancing that uh, has, has has been an ongoing process. So 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 you need to be reflexive about the type of criticality that you do because I have to be critical. That's that's my job as an academic. I have to have, you know, integrity to raising issues of concern while also um, recognising that I'm involved in constituting the space myself. So there you go. That's a thought, hey? Yeah, that was. I think that was really, really helpful to listen to for both for, for me and I'm sure for other early career researchers. Um, so thank you very much for sharing that perspective, Neil. Yeah, yeah. Just just to return to the point about the kind of the 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 object lesson that your kind of continued and extended kind of um, experience in this community can can give to people. So it's great. And yeah, I mean, and also to return to that that the point about the kind of normativity and reflecting on this your earlier point about the kind of ontological uncertainty here mm. it would be difficult i guess for you at this point to be normative about this thing because in part because of its uncertainty right like how it, it partly the ontological status of this thing means that it's more potentially has some impact on your ability to, to to cast the kind of judgment that people might ask for maybe i don't know maybe yeah, i'm being too sort. simplistic there <laughs> i mean i i could i could definitely go um get opinionated uh, on saying exactly how I think it would be if I wanted to, but I've never really seen that as my mm. task that, that almost everyone else does that. <laughs> you know, and I do something that almost no one else does. There are, I, I don't want to say it, there are, you know, there's about 10 relatively similar social scientists globally doing things that sit very comfortably in dialogue with what I do, but we're still, you know, a small cluster of people. That's great. Um, so yes, yeah, so I, I just kind of want to move on and talk about. I mean, we, I think we could fill two or three podcasts just discussing this, these kind of issues around culture. But I just want to talk about a little bit some of your wider work. Um, in a recent paper uh, that you had that focused on the March for Science. Yeah. Um, and so uh, maybe useful to perhaps press this with a little bit of um, discussion of what the March for Science was, but. Um, in that kind of paper, you use the concept of collective effervescence, right? Which is a concept that I'm sure is familiar to, to all of the sociologists of religion who are who are listening listening into this um, to kind of make sense of what of of the march. So, so could you just sort of tell us a bit about how how the concept helped you to make sense of specifically the march for science, but more broadly, perhaps what value you see in analysing science or popular science. Um, using kind of tools or concepts that might normally be associated with with sociology of religion or just religion in general. Yeah, sure. Okay, so I'll do the background on the March for Science first. So the March for Science um, happened on the 22nd of April uh, 2017. Uh, I say that there was a follow-up march the following year, but it was uh, not very well attended. Um, 
and you may, you may you your listeners may well remember it it was uh there was I, I believe about 600 of them around the world we specifically looked at the one in London mm-hmm. I was at Brunel University London at the time and there were some STS people there and we talked about this thing upcoming this moment where people were going to parade through the centers of major cities complaining uh protesting against attacks on science and and let's be clear there was a lot of uh, connection to uh, the recent election of Donald Trump in the US mm. and here in the UK, some of the debates around expertise in relationship to the Brexit debate. Mm. So we were, you know, sat in our university offices chatting about this and we thought, well, you know, it's not far away. Wouldn't it be great if we went there and did some ethnography? It was very opportunistic. So we had to get our ethics committee to see if they would shorten their procedure or at least, you know, not just sit on it for as long before they get back to us. And we got through, we got ethics forms to go out and essentially we attended the march. Um, A group of us attended, we filmed some things, we interviewed some people, we marched the march, we took foot field notes um we made jotted down all the signs as many signs as we could see that people were carrying there was lots of homemade signs at the march for science in london um and then decided that it was important to write a paper about what was happening how it happened um and for me uh you know i so i've been done ethnography previously i'm really interested in things like Um, mobility how people use space how people interact how artifacts sort of shape interaction so how is it that this group of people and the estimations were that 10,000 people walked through central London that day um, how is it that that this became some kind of symbolic performance what what were they doing what gave them some kind of unity Um, and and really I mean we took collective effervescence uh, from Randall Collins's ideas, um, interaction ritual theory, which uh, obviously draws upon Durkheim and earlier understandings, um, but it's, it's very much about applying it um, in secular and, and non-secular contexts. Um, so the kind of intellectual trajectory for us, it was kind of, it, it didn't feel like we were taking something explicitly from the sociology mm. of religion. We weren't, mm. I don't think we were actively engaged in a, in a project of, trying to see how that worked um it was more about randall collins's work seemed really good at talking about collective emotion um mm-hmm. and how symbolic or symbolic action reinforces uh collective and emotional action not just in the moment but how that goes on to subsequent events so this allowed us to link to to look at the march for science london as both a kind of a one-off event i mean i i did go to the one the year after but as i said 10,000 people down to, I would say, less than 100 people for the one in London. Mm. Um, uh, but also as a chain of events, you know, it came not long after the Women's March. Um, and there were subsequent events in London when Donald Trump visited, for example. Mm. Uh, there was a, a big vote in 2018, the People's Vote March, around um, having a second vote on the apparently finalized terms of brexit i mean they weren't quite as finalized as we thought but that's a, that's a different podcast um um so so this framework allowed us to both look at how this this moment of the march for science was this uh we talk about it in terms of an expression of um 
conflict with populist knowledge practices. So populist knowledge practices is the term that we use to define the kind of the cultural other that the people in the in the march were defining themselves against. Mm -hmm. So this could be um, all kinds of people like anti-vaxxers, climate change denialists, supporters of Trump, um, supporters of Brexit who were sort of unfair in their in their use of research and evidence and 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 uh, scientific work um as a moment to protest against the lack of eu funding that there could possibly be in uk science the impact on uh researchers who have passports from other parts of the eu who, who may not be able to continue to work or visit as easily uh with the uk so it, it was incredibly multifaceted and it was also um uh, not long before Theresa May announced a snap election. You may remember how that went for her. Uh, but this was kind of, it was literally only a few days before. So this was kind of the first big public event after that. So I remember the Liberal Democrats also marched and there was there was this agreement apparently with the, the Green Party also marched with the march organisers that the political parties could march as long as they stayed at the back of the march. They, they weren't allowed to move forward. So so this that was great for me because I'm really interested, as I say, in the organisation of space and cultural practice. So it was this kind of demarcation between the types of politics that was allowed at the because it was a political march but it wasn't party politics all it was but only at the back um and really interested in things like um the route itself right it went from outside the science museum in london through central london to end up at parliamentary square a deliberately kind of symbolic orientation of this movement of space i really liked the kind of the way that people tried to get chance going you know um uh, and the chance really didn't work that well. That, that was part of what was interesting about it. The whole march had this kind of fun, playful science geek tone to it, more so than like the anger that you might have seen. You know, we had a we had a another protest in London. It was around that time of you know the the distressing disaster of the Grenfell Tower, right, where there were marches, and we know some people went to both. And very different tone, a very different mode of protest. Obviously, um, uh, it, the, the very visceral and direct anger of the of the protest around Grenfell. Um, the March for Science was full of people dressed in lab coats and like silly spectacles and 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 dressing up as Dolly the sheep and and being very playful with an identity of what politicized science should look like. Um, so so you know there were some chants about uh, you know it's the classic joke what is it uh, uh, what do we want evidence based science when do we want it after peer review but you can only chant that three or four times and, it, and the joke wears out you know so so I was, I, so these are the types of things that I was interested in the way that this collective effervescence this shared energy took on a very particular form that was nuanced and specific to a debate about British science at that moment in in EU and political history but also could to connecting to a, a larger set of anti-populist movements around Donald Trump around sexism around racism. Mm -hmm. I know it's, it's it's really interesting. I mean, I I, I think it's really interesting how you that this kind of the ability for that particular kind of emotional sort of energy and or or kind of emotional sort of arrangement to kind of sustain itself seemed like potentially not necessarily there. If you or because of like you know the next one, the kind of follow up was you know much smaller. So it's like you know it's very kind of 
you know, if just thinking about kind of collective effervescence in terms of kind of Durkheim's work and about, you know, sustaining a community, like, you know, through this sort of shared, um, you know, reinforcing that we all kind of have the same sort of set of, of you know, ideas and beliefs, but, but the kind of purpose there is, is in part to kind of, to sustain, like, it seems that like, this this perhaps didn't function in that way in the way that kind of you know it might it might have because a year later people were not quite in the, on the same sort of level yeah absolutely absolutely as i say the, the paper is about looking at the specific specificity of uh the march of science london but also seeing how randall collins interaction ritual chains look at how these what what allows something to carry on mm. to subsequent protests on different themes no that's great I love that observation about the physical demarcation of the political groups to the back of the march. Um, you know, not not being embedded throughout the uh, science, not being politics by other means, but politics at the back. Yes, <laughs> um, that that is really interesting. Uh, physical demarcation. Actually, now you meant now you say it. It seems obviously that that's um, it says something quite interesting about what they see themselves doing and what science is and the role it's playing in society. Um, yeah, that is fascinating. I must admit, I haven't read the paper, but I will. <laughs> I will. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Um, I think, so I, this question seems like quite a, a large question. Um, but the more I think about it, the more we've been talking to it this whole time. And so I wanted to ask, uh, what lessons do you think that science and belief scholars can learn from STS? And conversely, how can scholars with an interest in, in science and belief contribute to the development of STS as a field? Um, but now I, now I speak about it, I almost think that sets up a, a, false, a false demarcation as well. Uh, but I wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, uh, as you say, a big question. Um, so I think I think uh, I'm aligning myself with your kind of false dichotomy analysis because um, thinking about that, I'm trying to think. Well, what is STS? Right? It's mm. it's incredibly porous. Uh, it's it's not super well defined. Um, different people have different ideas of what it is, and I think there's at least one fairly broad definition of STS when when if someone's you know in a scholarly way analyzing the relationships between science and belief then you know that 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 could be part of a broadly defined STS without just without doing anything just by being you know the nature of you know empirical social science study of 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 knowledge and science um you know if you try to have a more precise definition of um STS you normally you know you can go back to the classics and and look at some kind of commitment to the idea that knowledge is culturally produced um for some that would be a, an analysis of rel relativism um but some sense that the very nature of a technology or the very nature of a of of knowledge is something that's up for grabs for social science analysis um and that that social science analysis is likely to show how particular forms of uh, technology and knowledge are historically and geographically constituted and contingent upon that broader constitution and that moment, um, then uh, I, I don't know enough about scholars of science and belief to know whether that is that is something that 
that's core to their ways of thinking or not. Um, maybe it's for some and not for others. Uh, but but beyond that, I find it difficult to to find any kind of demarcation by which you would shut people out of STS if people really want to be say that they're they're doing STS as long as they're doing you know reflective social science work looking at how scientific knowledge is produced and used and also of course the implications of its of its use you know to go back to the cultured meat stuff some of the stuff that I do is speculate at least try to get other people to engage in conversations about the impact on rural communities and concentration of power in the food sector so you know thinking about the impacts of, of knowledge and technology is also a big part of STS um so I don't I don't I don't feel that scholars of science and belief are people that uh you know I would push away from STS in any way and 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 would, would be welcome to to, to contribute I don't know if you recognize that characterization. No, I mean I, I think I think as as <laughs> aspiring both STS and scholars of science and belief, I think James and well, I, I don't want to speak for James, I, I do occasionally, but, not this, <laughs> but certainly I, I <laughs> um think that yeah, uh, having that kind of open and, and welcoming stance, I think is 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 certainly something that's kind of encouraging to us. I think I I, I suppose this question in part, I don't know if you have thoughts on this, James, but I was going to say I suppose this question in part potentially is motivated by. A reflection obviously we've had doing this podcast for a while and, and thinking in this space between kind of STS and science and belief that that sometimes it seems from where we are but obviously from a very specific post but that perhaps concept the kind of uh kind of religion or belief as a sort of conceptual tool maybe doesn't find its way into some STS kind of literatures in as much as it might do or as a kind of in compared to other kind of um you know kind of categories or 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 identities or sort of or things that might affect how people engage with science and technology mm. uh in some kind of you know uh, it's a perhaps a kind of overlooked kind of category or it's just assumed to be a certain way you know, go back to those kind of conflict frames it's assumed that it will just lead to kind of a particular kind of engagement with science and technology perhaps more than it might be and i suppose some of what we might be trying to do with these kinds of things, but also just generally with the kind of research program that we've been engaged in, is 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 show or kind of make the case that like belief position or religious position that might have more 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 kind of value into kind of interrogating its role in some of these relationships or or you know the, between science technology and society. I suppose is that do you think that's what I'm being fair there, James? Or do you have anything to add? I don't know. You asked the question. So. My 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 mouth is so full of your words. <laughs> But I do agree. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a fair point. Yeah, I mean, obviously, these things depend on how you slice the cake in a way. Um, how are you going to define each of these areas? Therefore, how they're going to overlap? Um, I, I, and I think that observation that perhaps in more mainstream STS there has been a, a lack of or or less engagement with religion as as a category of modernity. I think is something that's probably worth worth thinking on but um but i i do think that that 
that perhaps it it should be uh, or a, a large category uh, for analysis. Um, but what's interesting, I suppose, on this podcast is that we have a strong bias towards sociology of science, given mine and Will's background. But I think in broader science and belief in terms of sociologists, I, I'd, I'd say that people who come to look at science and belief from a sociological perspective often come from sociology of religion, or at least that has been the case. Um so yeah, I think that's just an interesting observation. But I, th- I think I also agree with everything that both of you have said. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess um, is what you're suggesting. I, I mean, everything you're saying about the 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 role of religion as being important in terms of uh, thinking about science, thinking about society seems seems fair, and I'm sure can be argued very effectively intellectually. So um, this might be. An answer that isn't very satisfactory but um maybe there's maybe sort of increased visibility of encouraging people to publish and speak at, at the places where you think these, these currently is not as visible as it should be would help address that i mean i mentioned at the beginning that i've done a lot of work on um human embryonic stem cells and i subsequently did work on mitochondrial donation which is this thing's also known as three parent babies. So a lot of a lot of stuff looking at UK regulation of the use of the human embryo. Um, and I mentioned this because this was a moment where I can think that, you know, uh, not so much scholars of religion as I think about it, but in, in the data, um, you know, religious perspectives were something that were being analysed, um, you know, primarily about uh, religious uh, positions on the status of the of the and the use of the human embryo. Um, but likely there should be more cases than that, I suspect. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's you've kind of hit hit the nail on the head there in the sense, Neil, of, of thinking about, you know, as we do as STS scholars about where knowledge knowledge is situated and the cultural production of knowledge. You know, the same applies to to STS as a knowledge system and to science and belief as a knowledge as a knowledge system. Right. So there, you know, so going to the spaces and the places where these knowledges are constructed in terms of conferences or in the, the journals where they are, you know, engaging in that way is obviously, you know, clearly a way in which these concepts start to kind of you know become part of the discipline also as I, I again i have no idea if this is the case just well no idea across the board if this is the case but i certainly anecdotally in terms of my um sort of interactions with with the sts scholars who i who i've interacted with closely to this i think there are you know as james was saying quite a lot of people who come to science and belief come from sort of sociology of religion i think a reasonable number of sts scholars come actually from sort of scientist scientific backgrounds as well to an extent and there's some some are more sociological but there's certainly a i'd say there are certainly more well maybe this is this is an empirical question i suppose i'll pose it in that way instead of making a baseless claim but it would be interesting to see to to, to kind of have some comparison in terms of uh, the makeup of the disciplines in terms of background just in terms of you know science and belief and, and more mainstream SDS in terms of what you know the the kind of academic trajectory has been for people to get into those disciplines I think you'd potentially find some interesting kind of differences there mm. that you know that, that 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 disciplinary background is is imparting people with a set of interests and a set of kind of presuppositions about you know what's interesting in in what they want to study which maybe has meant you know that certain things are overlooked right i don't think that's particularly controversial to, to make that kind of claim about where the where the knowledges might have you know how they might have come to where they, they are now um but i suppose it just you know makes the argument that we need to you know diversify these things or bring you know more voices to the table and stuff 
Um, but I'm, I'm just rambling now at this point, aren't I? So I can draw things to a close. Because, um, I mean, I don't know if you've got anything else to ask, James. I mean, I could go on and on, but I think we've been No, talking. I thought when we got onto, like, some second-level reflexivity, I thought as well, that's probably <laughs> the natural place where we should land back down at Earth. But I think that's a really valid point, to be fair, as well. Yeah. yeah, no, yeah, so, uh, so, so, yeah, so thank you so, so much, Neil, for, for coming on and talking today about such a, a fascinating range of kind mm. of topics. It's been, it's been genuinely, um, just, yeah, really, really interesting talking to you. Um, this is, a yeah, I'm sure it'll be enjoyable to listen to as well. <laughs> Great. Thank you. For, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, Neil.